Well, good morning. Um, I want to um, first acknowledge Jill Joshua. Where is she at right now? Jill, right there in the back. Uh, Jill's here visiting with us uh, for uh, the day, and um, it's just great to have her with us. Um, Jill serves in uh, Northern Africa in an unreached culture, sharing the gospel through her family. So um, if you haven't met Jill, please uh, go say hi to her, as well as you know her well, um, be encouraged to have conversations. So Jill, it's good to have you here with us. Uh, children, which you have been already, you're headed out to your classes, so um, go ahead and do that. We are going to be in John chapter 2 this morning. Um, if you need a Bible, one of the ushers would be great to have one. Mike's got there holding them up back, so if you raise your hand, Mike will bring you a Bible. Got a few here, here, and here. It'd be great. Speaking of a different culture, um, a few, many of you know, a few weeks ago, um, month, last month, uh, Ben, Steve, and I had the privilege of going to visiting Croatia. And Ben and Emily lived there uh, for uh, right around 10 years. They were uh, missionaries there. And it was wonderful to return with Ben and just meet uh, many, many of the friends he had in the past, to see the country. Um, it was uh, truly just a blessed time. And we saw brothers and sisters who were uh, in the same way as us, trying to follow Jesus and uh, learn what that means for our lives, getting to know Jesus, and then making him known to others. And so it was just re- re- encouraging to see that across the, glo- the globe. However, there were a few times when Ben was off doing something more important than Steve and I. <laughs> so uh, we were on our own. And needless to say, when you're in another culture and when you don't speak their language, you're at a significant disadvantage. And so I learned rather quickly that signs are important. Not the signs with the language you don't understand, but signs that have pictures on them are very important. They help you to know where to go or what you're looking at. And um, they're meaningless if I couldn't understand it, but if I could interpret the sign, understand the sign, I would knew, know what to do. And one of those signs is very important, I think you all know, is that sign that you see this male character or a female character. <laughs> <laughs> it indicates where you might, uh, let's say, use the toilet, as they say there. Um, at one point I said, hey, I'm going to use the restroom. And they said, you're not going to rest there, you're going to use the toilet. So I said, all right, that's the way it works. <laughs> <laughs> that was a little embarrassing. So um, this morning, we come to a sign. And it's not a street sign, it's not a bathroom sign, but a visible sign, a miraculous sign by Jesus. A sign that's going to help us um, understand greater who Jesus is and the times in which we live. So up on the screen here, I hope you'll be able to see it. It'll be our big idea this morning. The first sign of wine reveals Jesus as the majestic Messiah who ushers in the age of joy. The first sign of wine reveals Jesus as the majestic Messiah who ushers in an age, or in the age of joy. We're going to begin by expounding this story before us in John chapter 2, 1 through 12. Then we're going to seek to interpret the sign, and then we're going to follow the sign. So expound the story, interpret the sign, and then follow the sign. That's will be our plan for this morning in three parts. I'll begin with verse 1 of chapter 2, and I'll read through verse 3. On the third day, there was a wedding in, at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, the, when the, oh man, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. 
When you visit another culture, you realize that in some ways, people are different than us. But in other ways, they are very much the same. And so here we are in this wedding. And a Jewish wedding is, uh, was different than ours, but it's still a wedding. The, their wedding went on for a longer period of time. Sometimes it would last up to a week. The community, friends and family would gather together and they would have this, maybe we wouldn't even call it a, a, a ceremony, we would call it a, a feast or a festival. F- family and friends giving over their time to come and celebrate this couple. At the same time, we can understand a wedding. Weddings are cross-culture in that we love to see two people, a man and woman, coming together, a couple in love and committing themselves to each other. There's just something special about a wedding. I think it's one of the highlights of life to celebrate a wedding with a couple. Even so, we also can tell that in weddings, it's that day that you want to be special. You want it to go without a hitch. And so you understand the idea of problems on a wedding. If the wedding, um, you, you want the dress to be perfect. You want the cake to be not only, you know, good looking, but tasty. Uh, you want the flowers to be fresh. There's a, a tendency and a, a desire to have the wedding just right because it's a special day. So the bride and the groom, they really want this, and they they, they want to honor their guests in that way. So here, on this wedding, is Jesus, and he's there with his mother, and he's with his disciples. They're in northern Israel. This is uh, away from Jerusalem. It's more the the common people, the rural people. It wasn't too far from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. Last time when Pastor Stephen was teaching in here, someone said, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's up in that type of area, away from the crowds. And there's a problem at the wedding, though. And the wedding... Isn't going without, out, isn't going off without a hitch. In fact, in fact, there's a big hitch. Verse three tells us what? They have no wine. After church day, we're having our graduation celebration and we're ordering pizza. If we run out of pizza, there's going to be a problem, especially for those teenage boys. <laughs> but at a wedding, if you run out of food, you run out of wine, you can tell. It's, it's embarrassing. It's obviously much more complicated. And all I have to say, Mary, her anxiety is beginning to rise. She, she sees this problem, and it's going to look badly upon the, the bride and the groom and their family. It's embarrassing. And so she wants, she's trying to think, what can I do to fix this problem? And so she goes to Jesus. Why does she go to Jesus? Well, some say this kind of, I think that will be, he's a 30-year-old carpenter. <laughs> he's not a vine dresser. What does he know about a wine? And, and in fact, we know from verse 11, if you look at verse 11, he has never performed a miracle before, so it wasn't like he has, is in the habit of performing miracles. So why does she go there? It's probably this. We can think about it a little bit. Mary, throughout her life, has seen Jesus. He's wise. He's handled life very well. And so she surmises her mind, maybe Jesus can take care of this problem. That, isn't that the Sunday school answer we ask our kids? What to do? Oh, go to Jesus, right? And so she um, takes this potentially shameful situation to, to Jesus. Now, before we move on, look back at verse 1. I want you to take note of something. In verse 1, it tells us that it's now the, the third day. This is uh, the third day they were in Galilee. And, and if you look back even further, you don't need to do this, but in, John has like, kept this sort of calendar for us as the book has, has begun. So after the prologue of verses 1 through 18, he's telling us now there's a new day. He sees it in verse 29. And then you see that in verse 35 of chapter 1, a new day. And then in verse 43. And so if you do the math and you add it up, we actually are on the seventh day right now. Four previous days plus the three in Galilee, we're at seven days. So why do I tell you about that calendar? Well, there's some importance to it. If you recall, the Gospel of John began 
with the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Everything that was made that was made was made through Jesus. There's something of creation being spoken of here. And that Jesus is, the, is God, the creator, come in human flesh, and he's brought forth life. He, he's the creator, God the creator dwelling among us. So that was chapter 1, the prologue. But then now in chapter 2, this is the point, there's a creational theme that is growing in chapter 2. Jesus, the creator of chapter 1, is ushering in the seventh day of creation in chapter 2. There's a day of rest and fulfillment. So, like the beginning of time, there was a man and a woman followed by a problem. Here we have a man and a woman getting married with a problem. In this story, there, there is something being revealed that is creational. A seventh day, a Sabbath, a rest of joy, and we'll see that. Now, as we go throughout the book of John, you'll notice this. There's a repeating theme of the number seven. I think it's really cool how it works out. I encourage you as we go through the book of John just to look for them. There's something beautiful in the way that John uh, works this together. Follow it. But knowing this creational theme is more important as we see Jesus' negative response to what his mother says. Notice there's something, there's negative response, there's something new and better going on here. So let me read on. We'll look at verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So verse 4 is a bit jarring, considering you think the answer is always good to Jesus, right? <laughs> but Jesus' mother comes to him, and she doesn't receive this response that we're expecting. Instead, she gets a also subtle rebuke in the form of a question. He says, woman, what does this have to do with you, do with me? <laughs> now, we've we got to be clear. If you were to say to your mother, woman, in this, our culture, not a good idea. I wouldn't do that. Don't, don't call your mother woman that way. It's probably not the best idea. But in that time, in the way he said it, it wasn't condescending. He wasn't belittling his mother. It wasn't rude. But it wasn't being overly, you know, kind or tender. It was just more straightforward. His language is more matter of fact. So that being said, we don't know exactly why Jesus gives this mild rebuke to his mother. We could think, well, maybe Mary was like taking Jesus as just this guy who could fix everything for her, and like that, that she was thinking of Jesus as the, the fix-it man. We don't know. What we do know is what Jesus said. What does he say after this? He says, my hour has not come. The phrase, my hour, is very important in the book of John. This is the first usage, and can you guess how many times it's going to be used? Seven more times in the Gospel of John. By using my hour, Jesus was teaching Mary, his disciples, and us today who are reading this Gospel about his purpose, about the very apex of his earthly ministry. He was focusing on his disciples on what was most important. Jesus had an appointed hour, an hour for his life that was expounded throughout the Scriptures and pointed to. His hour, his hour was the time of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, leading to the fulfillment of all God's promises for and in Jesus. It is the appointed time for God to complete the work of saving his people of their sins and bring forth a new and final race. That is that hour. And yet, this wedding here is not meaningless. There is a problem, and it's a real problem. So, what do we see next? Jesus' mother says, 
do whatever he tells you. That's what she says about Jesus to the servant. In the midst of her anxiety over this problem, the lack of wine leading to shame and Jesus' mild rebuke, Mary still presses into Jesus. She didn't turn to her own resources and say, I'm going to figure this out, I'm going to try to fix things. She simply says, do whatever he tells you. So I want to, this is a side point, but I just want to, before we move on, let's just pause and think a little bit about Mary's response. Imagine hearing in your own mind with Jesus a rebuke from him. How many of us would still say, do whatever he tells you? If I'm rebuked by Jesus or even somebody else, I'm often like, oh, I don't really want to talk anymore. I sort of shrink back. But that's not what she does. There's a rich and simple principle here. Don't turn from Jesus. Trust him. Even when you have been or you do feel rebuked, look to him. It's the best. Do whatever he tells you to do. Wait for him to tell you what to do next. Just be attentive, even in the midst of rebuke. This is a good example and counsel from Jesus' mother to each of us. Now, look at verse 6. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. We'll stop right there. At this time, it was not Jesus' hour, but there's a new beginning to begin, something creational. And there's another clue in these verses about that idea. Jesus instructs the servants to fill up six stone jars full of water. If you do the math, 120 to 180 gallons of water, all the way to the brim. That is a lot of water. And they didn't have a faucet like we do. The stone jars were for ritual purification. In the Old Testament, God's people were given certain instructions to consecrate themselves. This way, the people of Israel were set apart to be God's own special people. In different times and circumstances, they were to wash their hands or wash their, their bodies or their clothing in a way that denoted them as God's special people. They were marked off as his own. Now, we know, unfortunately, over time, uh, these rituals had become, in some ways, uh, a mixture of God's command and man's traditions. But the ritual purification was originally, and it represented a good gift from God to set upon his people. But it was not the ultimate goal. That's the key. It was not the ultimate goal. Through various rituals, God was in the past preparing his people today and then for something greater. At the wedding in Cana, the wedding with a problem, these six empty stone purification jars are becoming something better. After filling the jars with water, Jesus tells the servants to draw some out and bring it to the master of the feast. He's the one who has to taste it. Now, the servants knew themselves that the, the, it had been water in there, but really no one else did. So in, in, in the, the rest of the party was unaware of this problem. Only a few knew. They thought that the wine was still there. And so when the master was given a taste of the wine, he really wasn't surprised to taste wine 
What was he surprised? He was surprised that it tasted so good. This was good wine. He said, you have kept the good wine until now. It was fine wine. It was extraordinary wine. So this party, which could have ended in disgrace, it didn't go in disgrace. It went on to a celebratory joy. Instead of the bride and the groom being embarrassed or ashamed, there's honor for serving the good wine last. And no cheap stuff for their guests. The wine is at hand. It's for everyone there. Even better wine in the end. And this is where we arrive at the point. A sign has occurred. Jesus has turned water into wine, very good wine. That's amazing. We shouldn't just overlook it. The shame was covered. Honor was given. The feast was in celebration. But John, in verse 11, is, says something very important. He makes sure that we don't focus itself on, we don't focus on the sign itself, but the significance of the sign. The point of the sign is pointing to something more, something greater, something for us to understand and interpret. When I was in Croatia, Ben, or Steve and I were in Croatia, in the sense of Ben could read everything, uh, those signs were so important. But if I would have just stared at the sign for so long, I would have missed the point. The point, the point of the sign was telling me something. And the picture of the sign was teaching me something. And that is the same thing true. So now that we've expounded the story, we've got to see it all before us, let's look at verse 11a, the first part of verse 11, and interpret the sign. Let me read the first part of verse 11. This, the first of signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifest, manifested his glory. Manifested his glory. This is what we know so far. On the seventh day, Jesus, he performed the first of how many signs do you guess? Seven signs. <laughs> yes, seven signs in the book of John. And six water jars of purification leading to a seventh entirely different substance, wine. We're seeing here something creational is beginning to take place. Jesus is the creator who became man. The wedding is not his hour, but there's something being revealed here. Jesus is revealing himself as the majestic Messiah who ushers in a new age of joy. Now here's what, here's how we see this. In the Old Testament, the Messiah, the messianic kingdom and wine are linked in several passages. In the midst of the idolatry and exile from idolatry, for idolatry by the Jews, the Old Testament prophets spoke of a better day. And they spoke of the time for Messiah to come, and they did so in relation to wine. Did you know that? Ellie read a verse earlier, as well as Isaiah spoke of that day. And when God swallows death forever, this is what he says about the day when God swallows death forever. He says, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a rich feast of food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrows, of aged wine well-refined. Isaiah 25, 7. In addition, Amos says of that day, he says, The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Fruit. Amos 9, 13 through 14. We could go even farther. We could speak of how Jeremiah speaks in this way, and Hosea, they all have this idea, this sentiment that wine and the messianic kingdom speak of something greater. Now, the Old Testament is surely addresses drunkenness and the problems with that, but wine here is supposed to symbol 
joy and triumph and peace and celebration. Abundant wine means abundant joy for the people. It means uh, their, their fortunes have been changed. They've been turned from exile and idolatry to communion with God, fellowship with him, and joy in him and one another. This is what's happening here as Jesus turns water into wine. He's revealing something. He's manifesting his glory. The glory of the majestic Messiah. He's declaring that the time has come of which the prophets had spoken for so long. This glory has come. He's showing himself. This is the point. The first sign of wine revealed Jesus as the majestic Messiah who ushers in the age of joy. This turning wine into wine, it's, it's spectacular, but it's not the point. The point is that Jesus is the Messiah. But there's more. There's even more. Look at this. Consider again the six stone jars. The jars were for what? They were for ritual purification. And this isn't a, just a throwaway detail. The sign of turning water into wine was to take that old means of purification and to say it's obsolete. There's a new purifier has come. The people of God would no longer be marked off by the various washings and rituals that would take place. They would be marked off by the Messiah himself who would wash them with his blood. Today, at the end of service, we get to partake of the Lord's Supper together. We are going to take of the fruit of the vine, wine, or in our case, grape juice. (laughs) And it reminds us of the purifying work of Jesus. He, for his church, he consecrated them as his own special people. Jews and Gentiles, something greater in the, in, in the future. The, the water of purification was good for a time, but it's nothing compared to the wine of the purification shed by Jesus, his blood. Those six, six stone water jars, they're replaced by this seventh, a new and final purification. Jesus' blood cleanses everyone of their sins, those who follow Jesus. No amount of ritual washing could compare to the blood of Jesus. And that's what that symbol is taking place, of the purification jars turning to the sixth new and amazing substance. The problem with the wedding leading to a miracle of wine was a sign meant to teach Jesus' disciples that he was creating, he was beginning, he was ushering in, Something new. Jesus' coming means joy. And not just a little bit of joy, but joy that is abundant. Later on, we're going to read in the Gospel of John. John will say this, quoting from Jesus. He says, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. As water became fine wine here, Jesus is bringing abundant joy. But do you know what? That joy that he brings today in each of his believers' lives, it's nothing compared to the day that will finally come. Right now, the joy that we experience in Jesus as we're falling, it's like a drop of wine upon the tongue versus this abundance that will come. And we're not talking about drunkenness here. We're talking about pleasure and fulfillment of being in Jesus' presence. There'll be a fullness to the brim of that joy that is to come. This is the sign of the wine, teaching us that there's joy in Christ for each of us. So, let's look at our third aspect now. We've interpreted the sign. Now let's consider how we might follow the sign. Look at the second half of verse 11. 
and then verse 12. And his disciples believed him in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. When we began the book of John, Pastor Stephen, um, he shared the purpose of the book of John. You remember it? It, John makes it pretty clear. He doesn't leave us guessing. In, In John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The disciples' belief was the response of the water turned to wine. They are following the pattern of the purpose of John, why John wrote this book. They believed in Jesus as the Messiah, and in believing, they gained life. Belief, this is important, belief is the means by which the joy of Christ is apprehended. It is the way to receive the Christ of joy. So following the sign, we can't just look at the sign. Following the sign means believing in the majestic Messiah. It means believing in who he is and then doing whatever he says. A belief, sometimes we can confuse and just think belief is a mental assent. It is a mental assent. Believing, I, I believe this is to be true. But it's also, it's also an active submission. To believe in Jesus is to receive the purifying work of the Messiah and to surrender to his reign in your life. A belief is an ongoing response of saying, yes, I believe this is true, and yes, I'm going to follow in his steps. Those who just hear of the Messiah or those who just listen to the words about the Messiah, they're not truly believing. True belief trusts in who he is. It is following and obeying. Believing is the right response to Jesus and the means to apprehend the Christ of joy. So when the disciples saw this sign and then believed, They were receiving the joy of Christ. Listen to it later. I quoted earlier about what Jesus said about joy and about the fullness of joy. Listen to what he says right before that. He says this, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Those who believe in Jesus, it means that they are, believe in him mentally, and they follow him. They obey him. They do whatever he says. And this is the way to apprehend, to receive the restful joy that is found in Jesus. I was thinking back in my own life um, to back to the time where I was graduating from high school and then college, uh, 23 years ago. And I remember that time where I, I put my faith in Jesus. Before I, I was a student, I was anxious for many things. I worried about my grades. I worried about um, like how others might look at me in certain times. I worried about how am I going to provide for all this money for college. Um, I worried about relationships. I worried about succeeding or failing in various areas. And let me tell you, those thoughts did not create joy. It was, a, <laughs> it was more of a feeling of uncertainty and anxiousness. So if you're a graduate, just listen. I hope you can relate to this. Um, I'm sure others can relate in the same ways, just not, in the diff- not right now being a graduate. I was not believing in the Messiah. I was not submitting to his control over my life, and so I didn't have joy. But when Jesus was revealed to me, he revealed himself to me through maybe my family. Uh, it was friends. I had a soccer coach, um, his word. I believed, and then in believing 
there was a certain rest and joy that took place. I found rest and contentment like never before. Even in the midst of hard things, difficult things, anxious times, there was a rest and joy that was taking place. Jesus was given the rightful place in my life that is first, and then all the other cares and worries, they became secondary to him. And submitting to his ways for my life really put me in the right, right mindset in where I was. Now, I have to be honest, though. It's now 23 years later, and I still have anxiousness. Um, anxiousness just didn't go away in believing. My perspective on life changed, and it helped a tremendous amount. But still today, I need to continually turn back to believing. It's not a one-time event. Belief in Jesus is a, is a believing, believing in who he is and then yielding to him over a lifetime. I've increased in some ways like an increasing anxiety for different reasons and different ways. And I think many of that, it, it's sinful. I, I'm, I'm not trusting the Lord. I'm trusting in myself. And when I do so, the joy wanes. There's, I'm placing the weight of the world upon my shoulders and less upon trusting in Jesus in all circumstances. It's a sign of unbelief. You may not yourself struggle with anxiety. It may be something else. But the way, that, um, the way that you receive the joy of who Jesus is is by um, l- repenting, turning to him, and believing and falling. There will be a final day of complete joy, but it has not come. I, I must day by day t- today believe and follow Jesus while I'm waiting for that day, and this is where the joy comes. But the good news, and the ultimate news is this, Despite all of my failings and sins, I'm in Christ. And by believing in Jesus, I have a lasting joy that may not be the same as my feelings at times, but there is a lasting joy there, a joy in all circumstances, when there's problems, when there's difficulties, or when there's not. And it's not like, it's not saying, I'm just going to be a positive poly and believe that all things are going to be good. No, it's trusting in the gospel and trusting in the goodness of Jesus. And it's not a stoicism to say, oh, I'm not even going to think about those things. I'm not going to worry about my feelings and emotions. No, I'm going to trust Jesus in all things. Belief in Jesus as the majestic Messiah, despite all our problems and sins, this is the way that we receive the joy of Christ. Jesus really is real. He came into this world. He did turn water into wine, and he began an age of joy. That, that, that joy has begun, and it is available to all, and it won't be complete until one day all things are restored and there will be fullness of joy completely. And that is the day we look forward to. So in all circumstances, I do have joy. I want to close with just a little bit of analogy. Hopefully this helps you just to think about this a little more. Think about this. The day has arrived, and (laughs) you're a woman, all right? So if you're a woman, that's all right, but you're a woman in this story. (laughs) Your wedding day. The day you've waited for all of your life. It's an outdoor wedding. The, the day you've, you've thought about the flowers, the beauty of the garden. Your family and your friends are there to celebrate with you. But on that day, guess what? It rains. It rains like it did re- last night. It rains and it pours. And as you walk down the aisle, your dress is muddied. Your hair is flattened. The, the, the guests are soaked. The cake is dripping and your mother, she's distraught. 
But guess what? Your groom is still up there looking at you. Your groom is still there desiring you. He adores you. And he's going to take you home to be his bride. This is the picture of finding lasting joy in Jesus. Despite the problems of a wedding, you are married to the groom. There's joy in being married to the groom. Joy unspeakable, joy that is lasting. Joy in a problematic world. So we must believe in Jesus and then follow the sign. Follow the sign of who he is. Grads, you have an opportunity to do that. Members of this church, those who may be seeking and trying to understand who Jesus is, we have an opportunity to believe and trust and experience the joy that comes in all of life's circumstances and wait for that day where it will be fully, completely revealed. Will we believe and follow the sign of Jesus? That's the question. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you that we get to um, just week by week um, come and receive your word and take it in. Um, Lord, we pray that as we know you more, we realize from your word who you are, that you are Messiah come into the world to save, save sinners, who offers himself and offers the joy in all and every circumstance and waiting for this final joy. Lord, help us to believe on a day-by-day basis, to believe in who you are and then to surrender to you, to walk with you, to day-by-day seek to do whatever you say. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.